brain fog, insomnia, moodiness, weight gain. Maybe you think they're just part of getting older, but Midi Health understands that for women over 40, they can all connect to menopause. It's at the root of dozens of symptoms we experience, not just hot flashes. Midi clinicians are menopause experts offering safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate megastores led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Hey everybody, it's John from Word Balloon letting you know that once again I am helping out on an online convention and make you aware of it. Baltimore Comic Con is coming. It's going to be October 23rd, 24th, and 25th, and we've got a lot of exciting programming to bring you that weekend. Among the stars already confirmed, Dave Gibbons, Howard Chaikin, Dennis Cowan, Bill Sienkiewicz, Walt Simonson, Tom King, Jerry Conway, Mark Wade, Brian Bendis, Susan Eisenberg, Cecil Castellucci, Stephanie Phillips, Becky Cloonan, Garth Ennis. How about that? Just for starters, we've got incredible programming that we're putting together, a lot of -of one-of-a-kind stuff that you are not going to want to miss. It's Baltimore Comic Con, including the Ringo Awards, which will be presented live. Can't wait to be part of it. Baltimore Comic Con, October 23rd, 24th, and 25th. Keep listening to Word Balloon for more details. You're not going to want to miss it. Hi, everybody. Welcome back. It's Word Balloon, the comic book conversation show. John Sutras here. It's a new week, and yeah, it does feel like spring and uh, autumn, doesn't it? <sighs> Thank God. Anyway, uh, great spotlight today with uh, Stranger in Paradise creator and comic book icon, Terry Moore. It's from the Baltimore Comic Con, a great spotlight panel that Amy Dallin did. And she did a great job on it, too. Much better than I could have. A really great conversation. And Terry Moore is certainly one of the great indie creators of comics. Amazing, uh, you know, success along with Strangers in Paradise, Rachel Rising, so many other great stories over the years. And it's great to hear uh, someone like Amy give this conversation. Terry Moore Spotlight today on Word Balloon. This episode of Word Balloon brought to you by the League of Word Balloon listeners and their subscriptions and support of Word Balloon via Patreon, patreon.com slash Word Balloon. I am pleased to say that not only are there listeners, but also a lot of comic book guests are uh, supporters of Word Balloon via Patreon and part of the League. Uh, I would like to uh, send you a domino mask and cape for your support. If you're interested, I know it's a weird time and a lot of people are counting every penny. Um, is Word Balloon and the programming I provide to you each month worth a dollar a month to you? Is it worth the price of a comic book a month? If you think it is, if you can swing it, I hope you'll consider a subscription to Word Balloon via Patreon, patreon.com slash Word Balloon. Word Balloon is also brought to you by Aftershock Comics. Aftershock has a really interesting slate of books that are happening. A really neat book that just got announced. It's called Knock 'em Dead, and it's from Elliot Ryle and Mattia Monaco. 
Pryor Bryce has always wanted to be funny, and now he's taken the plunge and started doing stand-up comedy. Unfortunately, his older sister, Ronan, wants her brother to stop daydreaming and focus on his future. Pryor is determined to succeed. The only problem is he totally sucks at stand-up. That is until an accident changes everything, leading both Pryor and Ronan to discover comedy isn't all, all it's cracked up to be. Coming your way in December, it's Knock 'em Dead, a supernatural horror about the high cost of making it. Brought to you by Elliot Royale and Mattia Monaco from Aftershock Comics. Pretty neat stuff. A new interesting book that will be joining the Aftershock Pantheon. Check out more details. Go to their website and find out about more great series. Full story descriptions, preview pages of art, and the diamond coats on how to order these books and more at AftershockComics.com. Okay, let's now go back uh, to Baltimore Comic-Con from a couple weekends ago for this great spotlight panel on Terry Moore on today's Word Balloon. Welcome to the next exciting panel for Baltimore Comic-Con Online. My name is Amy Dallin. I talk comics all over the internet, wherever possible. And today I am thrilled beyond belief to get to introduce the man who wrote the book on love and thrills in comics. Please welcome Terry Moore. Hi, what a great con- uh, introduction. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> it's so very nice to meet you. Thank you. How are you doing today? I'm doing good. I've been doing uh, my own uh, TerryCon sort of this weekend as well. So I've been doing panels on Instagram and Facebook and doing Baltimore at the same time. It just feels like a real Comic-Con weekend. If you're getting enough sleep, it's not a convention, right? Right, right. <laughs> <laughs> Well, first off, for anyone watching this who might not be familiar with Terry Moore's incredible body of work yet, I actually stole my intro quote a little bit from my favorite pull quote about your work, which is from the back of the Strangers in Paradise Pocket Edition, when Neil Gaiman said, What most people don't know about love, sex, and relations with other human beings would fill a book. Strangers in Paradise is that book. <laughs> Man, I, I've been living off that quote forever. <laughs> <laughs> but of course, uh, Strange of Paradise is a, 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 an incredible work, but you have also added to that, you're branching out into all kinds of different genres. You are a titan of self-publishing. Uh, I want to get into as much of it as possible. And if you're watching this, I hope that you have a lot of questions as well, because if you start preparing them, you could throw up question before it in the chat if you want. We have someone who's going to be watching out and collecting those, and you can ask your questions to Terry Moore when we get to that portion of the panel. I'm not afraid. (laughs) (laughs) Go ahead. Well, well, first off, just to get that out of the way, what would be the scariest question someone could ask you? Oh, what's next? Right? Well, I'm definitely going to ask that one. (laughs) Uh, Fortunately, I have an answer this time. Excellent, excellent. Uh, So I'd like to start Actually, at the beginning, if we could, because I I was very interested to find that you came to the world of comics having tried some other forms of art uh, or incorporating those. You came from the worlds of music and from film, uh, and you, I think you can see that in a lot of your work. But why comics? Uh, you know, it was something that I was, even as a little child, itty bitty, <laughs> uh, I had sketchbooks. I have a sketchbook in my uh, archives right there. Uh, from when I was about eight years old. So it's just something I, I love doing. And uh, I tried the music business and it wasn't really a great fit. And then I went to the editing, like you said. And uh, after a while, I editing is about creative by committee. So I wanted to be more solo with my ideas 
uh, and not have to talk 100 people into it. Uh, so I thought about what can I do? And I remembered my cartooning, my love for cartooning. I'd been doing it at nights anyway. But just about that time is when I discovered self-publishing movement. There was this big movement in the early 90s. And I saw these other people doing it. And I thought, you know what? I'm going to try that. And boom, here I am. So I've, from my perspective, at least, it seems like you were one of the pioneers of, of self-publishing. And you are going on 30 years there, right? I'm technically not. If you go back into your ancient history book, <laughs> right after the English, uh, Egyptian dynasty, there was this first uh, Brat Pack wave that had uh, like uh, six to eight people in it. And you know what? Neil Gaiman was part of it for a short time because he was brand new to DC Vertigo. Uh, but he was in, he ran with that pack. And it was Jeff Smith and Dave Sim and um, Colleen Duran and Charles Vess and a lot of people. That's the group I saw that inspired me. And that was like 1992. And then I came in in 93 or 94. And they're the ones who encouraged me. I would go talk to them in a show and I'd say, how do you do that? <laughs> and they were very generous with their time. And they, you know, Jeff Smith especially took me under his wing and said, here's how I do it. Here's my printer. Here's what you've got to fill the orders, da, 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 you know, and they pulled me along. So thank you to them, the first generation. I'm the second generation X-Men. <laughs> it's a good generation. You're Wolverine yeah. and Storm, you know. Uh, there you go. Uh, so what has changed in that? I mean, what hasn't changed? But uh, looking back now, jumping into it in 1993, what would surprise 1993 Terry Moore about where things have gone since then? <sighs> One thing that I knew would always be around is comics because I'm old enough to remember comics going through the 60s, the 70s, the 80s, the 90s. So even though every three years, it looks like everything's gonna end and be different, comics was always there somehow. So that's kind of what I was looking for. I wanted to be in an industry that would be here till I croaked. <laughs> and I had a lot of faith in comics, surviving whatever happens, you know? I still have that faith. I still think that one way or the other, there will always be cartoonists making stories and one way or the other, we'll see them. So what I did not expect, because it never happened before, was that nowadays we have a way to make a comic and share it directly to your audience. That didn't exist in 93. In 93, you really did have to go to the building in New York and talk an editor into it and they had to talk other people into it. So you had to have, you know, there were those obstacles. And that's why there were, I think that the talent, the people that were being published was a much smaller pool. And now the people being published is, you know, do it yourself, why wait? Why do you need a middleman? And um, that is the surprise for me. I, when I started, we, the internet had just kind of kicked in and people like we had some Usenet, you know, we had some Usenet, mess lists. Uh, there was CompuServe. Mm -hmm. There was a thing called that, and that's where I first talked to people like Neil Gaiman and Bill Willingham when they were very first working. And Frank Miller was very accessible; he was all over the place. <laughs> so early days, you know, and you think, you say, okay, we still got to go to the DC office and talk somebody into it, <laughs> and now you don't. 
Now, eventually, I, and I, I want to circle back to your major works, but but since you happened to bring it up, you you did either get talked into or talk someone into uh, playing <laughs> around with some superheroes in some wider worlds and on what happens to be. You you have great comics and you have great taste. Birds of Prey and Runaways, two of my all-time favorite series. If you could br maybe briefly talk about what was that period about? Were you just trying out different things or scratching an itch or did someone just come along with an offer you couldn't refuse? Well, uh, all that, I, you know, I, I really do love comics and um, I was always really keeping up with what everybody else was doing. I was a big fan of those books that you mentioned and um, their creators, especially the writers. And the, um, like for instance, The Birds of Prey, uh, that just kind of was one of those things where I, the DC office used to be about 30 people that we all knew. <laughs> so you would have conversations with uh, people, the editors, and they would say, why don't you try this, you know, and you can squeeze it in between your schedule. And you would talk about it for a year and then the time would come and you would take your shot. You know, you would do a book. That's why we all used to really love going to conventions because the editors would be there and you could shake hands and have a Coke with uh, Karen Berger, uh, you know, or whoever, and, and actually talk about ideas. And they would say, you know, I've had this on the desk for a long time. And I'm looking for the right person. Would you be interested? So it really was that, you know, that friendly. Um, and that was kind of how, uh, well, DC style, that's how Birds of Prey happened. Just an invitation and said yes. And then I did some books for Marvel. Um, that was, the thing that I did was um, The Runaways, the uh, Brian K. Vaughn was going to leave and then Joss Whedon did a little run on it and they were looking for somebody to kind of do a run after that and I think it was just kind of to close it out and um, I love that book so I said yes and what I think it timed out so that it was be right after I finished Strangers in Paradise this long run and I wanted to do something else for a year and that was what did that so I did that and I called the pho up on the phone in the morning and said, do you I talked to Joe Casada and I said, you know, I want to do something else for a few months. Do you have anything that, you know, that I might be able to fill in on? And he said, let me check. I'll call you back. And he called me back that afternoon and offered me that uh, runaways. But he also offered me uh, Spider-Man loves Mary Jane. So I got two books in one call and I didn't want to turn either one down. So I said, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I took on two books at once and, um, I actually loved doing the Spider-Man Lost Mary Jane because it was the cast in high school, which is my favorite period, where you still have Gwen Stacy and Flash and uh, Liz and all that and Harry. And uh, I loved it. Just loved it. It was a great experience. And they're all nice people. And you said in an older interview that uh, Spider-Man was the character that you identified with most. Did that get to scratch that itch a little bit? Yes, it did. And uh, well, I loved him as a kid and, and as a teen because he was us. He was, you know, he, he was in high school when all this stuff happened in, in my version, the one I read. And uh, so I could relate to being a teenager and going home and take your shoes off to your socks and climb up on the ceiling for the first time and think, oh my God, I really can't stick to the ceiling, you know? <laughs> and I just like that aspect, that reality aspect of it. And then he had to go get on a bus or a train and then go with go from Queens into Manhattan to go find trouble. <laughs> and then after he finished trouble in Manhattan, he would have to take the subway back to Queens. You know? <laughs> there I was think, all this. 
as a kid reading that, I don't think I really fully processed like how much distance there was between those points of like he has to get on a subway or something. How does that work? I when I before I ever went to New York, I just thought he lived in Manhattan somewhere. You know, <laughs> everybody lived in Manhattan. Yeah, I didn't realize. Yeah, I didn't realize they were commuting in. <laughs> so you actually have to get on the subway and go into town and look for trouble. And I just thought that was so funny. Uh, so I'm, I think for your independent works, let's start at the very end. Did you always have in mind something like five years that would bring together all of these disparate worlds in your work? Was that a secret master plan or were you just like, what would happen if we did this? <sighs> You know, um, it. You know, it, my journey. It looks like if you were, if I was a car and you were following me down the road, it looks like I'm making all the correct turns and we're just going right to our destination. But inside the car, it is chaos. <laughs> the maps are flying. The, the the internet won't work. Where do we go? Where do we go? You missed it. You know, it, that's me. Um, I kind of started out with this really small core cast in Strangers in Paradise. And then I had a vision that, you know, I'd have these two opposite girls and through the course of the story, they would, they would change to the other, be more balanced. They're, they start off polar, they get more balanced. And then by the time I finished that story, it was so long and I had such a big cast. I thought, I have people living all over the country now in Strangers in Paradise, that's my core cast. So the next story, um, I wrote it in California, and I thought, well, surely there's somebody in California that I can like, you know, nudge. And by the end of the story, there was, you know. And then the next book, the next book, the next book, wherever I went, there was an SIP character. And I just began thinking about the science fiction writer Harlan Ellison. He, I mean, um, not Harlan, bless his heart, I love him, uh, Robert Heinlein. Robert Heinlein had all these books and he got about halfway through his career and he decided I, these all fit together. And if he used his one main character, Lazarus Long, as the golden thread, uh, he could tie it all together into one big Harlan. I mean, uh, I keep saying Harlan, uh, into one big Heinlein verse. Harlan Heinlein sounds like the superhero name that Harlan the comic Heinlein. characters have, yeah. <laughs> That's not easy to say, Harlan Heinlein. Um, <laughs> And then Stephen King did the same thing, you know, he did Dark Tower and wrapped it all together. So I, it was just kind of those, one of those things that happens when you get a lot of it on the table and you think, you know what, this actually does all happen in the same era, our, our time, current time, and they're just in different towns. What if they all do this, you know? So you just find a good national global reason to bring them together. It was a good reason. <laughs> I, it's, I feel like I have this ensemble acting class, you know, and they can play any role and they'll come in and take over this, you know, let's do this this year, let's do this next year. That's actually, I, I love that you put it that way, because one of the things that I love so much in your work is that it does feel like seeing characters who are real people growing across time, but played by actors that you recognize, their style, the way they deliver lines, the facial acting in your art. It very much felt like watching like a reunion series where they brought the cast back from your other favorite shows. So how, I mean, this is a big question, but 
how, what would you describe as the Terry Moore approach to story? How are you synthesizing all of those elements into comic book storytelling? The, my number one rule is the more people know, the more they care. So I have consciously thought about this, that I wanted to, after having done an editing career where everybody wanted to be in at the right moment of action, stop at the last moment of action, get out. I wanted to get there early and leave late in the comic because uh, a minute before everybody else came into the room was a very interesting conversation. And then when we all leave the room, they say more stuff and that's the stuff you really want to know what they said. And I thought, I'm going to do Strangers in Paradise that way. I'm going to go ahead and invest the page time. You know, it takes several pages to watch them just chat casually first. And then the, uh, the problem enters the room, you know, so that you know a little more about them. You know, you know what they think about hot fudge sundaes and eating cereal in the, at midnight and uh, they're maybe they're struggling with a boyfriend or their mom or their mom's dog that won't shut up. Or, you know, <laughs> it's just all these little details in life that make you feel like you're there. Uh, you can relate to it. And then if I cut all that out, you would have basically just a John Wick movie. <laughs> suddenly something crashes into the room. Everybody goes flying. They chase him. There's a big fight cut out immediately the minute something explodes. Well, that's fun to watch, but I don't know who it happened to or, you know, what the backs, you know. So the more you know, the more you care. And I that, spent the page time on it. That laughter is me suddenly realizing how much I would watch a uh, Kachu versus John Wick standoff. <laughs> oh, John's going down. <laughs> He's met his match. <laughs> Where did, so you knew when you started that you had this idea of two very different women who would come together sort of in terms of personality. So that element, you did know where you were going. Mm -hmm. How did you, because I mean, Strangers of Paradise starts in, uh, if you've read a lot of long running comics, folks in the audience, you know that a lot of times they take a long time to become what they are. But there are other books, oddly enough, like Spider-Man and Strangers in Paradise, where Basically, from page one, things seem really clear. How did you arrive at Kachu and Francine? And how did it seem so well-formed at the beginning, even if we had no idea how much was coming for us in the journey that they would take? Yeah, You know what? The, the, the shortcut to skip a lot of talking is if I tell you that um, my Francine and Kachu could really, you could really start get a good head jump on them if you just start with Gwen Stacy and Mary, and Mary Jane. <laughs> right? I mean, come on. Let's go back to what I was reading when I was 10. That's, that's it. <laughs> if you took Gwen Stacy and she's the girl next door, the girl you asked to babysit your kids, the reliable... Uh, I mean, just look at her personality. And then look at Mary Jane, off the chain, wild. You know she's going to get into some trouble in her 20s. Um, I just took that and expanded it and updated it and made it more extreme. You know, if I look at it now. Did you know you were doing it at the time? No. At the time, I thought I was doing uh, 
Jennifer Connelly and Christina Applegate. <laughs> that was my casting call. And I just thought of, there were a couple of movies where Jennifer Connelly played uh, the, the girl next door, mm. like in Rocketeer. And then Christina Applegate, you know, as Kelly in Kelly Bundy, uh, was just, you, you knew that whatever she, she stayed out late every night and whatever she was doing, it was up to no good. <laughs> and, I, you know, we know these two people in school. All, we have friends like this in school. And I, I always knew two girls like that in school. And then when you hit your 20s, you still know them, but it's, you know, different. But I really just kind of pulled back to my teenage years to think about those archetypes. And especially in my first career as a musician, when I was in bands working clubs every night, uh, there was a bartender who tended to work all the bars in town. And it, she was very Kachu-like. Um, and she had a funny name. And, but she was uh, built just like her. And she had black hair. And we all liked her. And we all gave her respect and space. And she was just very cool. And I, I think probably that if you mix all this together, you know, You've got the rest. You got the recipe. <laughs> Absolutely. One thing you do, uh, interestingly, based on I, I can definitely see, and you you put references in the book to the Jennifer Connelly side of Francine. But one thing I want to bring up, just as uh, a reader of your works, not to put you on the spot, but you were clearly doing it on purpose. Uh, you spotlight different body types in your comics in a way that was very unusual in the early 90s and remains somewhat unusual now. Much I, I think things have sort of happily, happy to say developed and grown in that area, but uh, that was also in place right from the start. Did that come from experience in other genres, just your own personality, your interests? Much as I love Gwen Stacy and Mary Jane, you can basically uh, copy paste them onto each other for a lot of things. As a Betty and Veronica fan, I, I will say I grew up on a lot of carbon copy women and I love them very much, but it means that it hits like a hurricane when you pick up something like Strangers in Paradise for the first time. Was that intentional? Did you know how that would affect people or were you just doing it because it seemed right? No. Uh, by the time I started the first issue of Stranger in Paradise, I was a diehard feminist. Uh, <laughs> I had, in the uh, late 80s and early 90s, is when they started, uh, we started getting a, a new wave of female stand-up comedians. And they were so mad. Funny, <laughs> but mad. And once I started listening... Uh, I began to get this imagery in my head, a new perspective. Instead of looking at life like a guy, I began to like get on, on a neutral fence and look at guys and girls. And by the time it was over, I started Stranger in Paradise, I had this opinion that, well, I, I grew up in a house of women. I married immediately. I've been living with a woman all my life. And I know what it's like to hear the stories from them about all the affronts that come every single day. And it's like living on a planet full of predators. And you didn't ask for any of it. And you're just trying to be your best person and have your friends and have your life and your nest. And all this other shit comes in and you didn't ask for it. You didn't ask for people to stare at you. Back off. Stop. You know, leave me some space. 
And I began to get into that. Once I saw that, I couldn't unsee it. And so we have Kachu, um, who is very militant and very angry. But then we also have Francine, who has not started that transition. And she's getting all the crap. She's uh, a very attractive person. But she did not ask for all this crap that comes with it. The baggage that comes with being attractive is almost not worth the price that you pay. And um, so that was the story I was giving her. That, uh, And it was something for these guys to have conversations with her where they were, look how long it took for guys to take her seriously in the story, right? And it, by the end of Strangers in Paradise, she has found her, her footing. She's found her strength. You really see her tear into the ex-boyfriends and take the power back and all that. And she did it in a natural transition way where it was growth throughout the story. I mean, you can't do that in the miniseries. I, thank God I had 100 issues to do it. But uh, that was the most gratifying part was watching these two women who were not balanced are, you know, um, well-rounded. Kachu was too angry. Francine was too naive. You put them together, they kind of battle it out. And then they both come out on the other side as more rounded people that are uh, going to have much happier lives from then on. So I wanted a happy, I wanted it all to have a happy ending. That's for sure. Uh, and for, for which uh, I say we are all very grateful. Um, because you you don't pull punches on the heartbreak along the way, but uh, and I'm sure it it would have been an epic story had you gone in a different direction. But I I happen to be personally glad that Thank that you. was always the plan. I I was at first I was thinking it would be more uh, traditional tragic love affair stuff, but then 9/11 happened about halfway through the run, huh. and after that I thought no everything I do from now on is going to have a hope and happy endings, you know. So it changed my whole writing style. And it, post 9-11, I read about a, a, a man in Japan who survived the bomb. And he was an artist. And he spent the rest of his life dedicating himself to painting pictures that brought people peace and tranquility. And I thought, you know, that's, that's how 9-11 affected all of us mm -hmm. at the time. It gives you a new value for peace. I'm I'm loving some of these comments going by. Uh, uh, the the comments on Francine, the person who accurately pegged that my whole mood right now is I can't believe this is happening. Uh, <laughs> uh, thank you so much. Please do keep. Uh, we will get to questions in maybe just another ten minutes or so. Um, but let's talk about once I could talk about Strangers in Paradise forever, but. Uh, you have added many new corners, and part of that, I, it seems like, has been maybe a desire to play with different genre stuff. Yeah. Uh, you get you get an awful lot of territory in just in Strangers in Paradise, but you've now taken on science fiction and horror. What has been the biggest challenge or the most fun one to discover in Echo and Motor Girl and Rachel Rising and your other work since then? Uh, the biggest challenge, of course, is always doing something you're not immediately... Uh, connected with. I mean, it's not something that comes easily. So that's a challenge. Like um, there, I would say doing the motor girl story, 
The Motor Girl is a story about a veteran who's done three tours, gets injured, comes back with PTSD, and has issues, and is uh, trying to work it out. So it's it's very it's a kind of a combination between uh, Wizards of Oz, um, where you start off thinking this is just a goofy story, and then you realize everything means something. Mm. Um, that versus you know. Um, the Hurt Locker. If you mixed Wizard of Oz and Hurt Locker, you come up with this weird story. <laughs> Safely, we can say that's a sentence that's never been uttered, uh, which is always a good reason to talk about something. That's what you hope for in a story pitch. Uh, a story pitch is a sentence that you've never heard before, and you go, ooh, yeah. <laughs> so that, yeah, that was uh, tricky. And I thought about it for a year before I started, and I remember having a conversation at New York Comic Con, I was walking the floor in Artist Alley, stopped to talk to somebody, and they mentioned something along those lines. And I said, you know, I'm thinking about doing a story about PTSD, and this guy turns out to be a therapist uh, in his day job. And he's, we had a conversation about it. And, and uh, there was a guy in Chicago that I see at every show, and he's a vet that came back. Um, and he introduced himself to me, and he had written me a letter from uh, who's from from the palace in Baghdad when the Marines got there, and said, "We're I'm sitting in the palace and I'm reading your comic and uh, thank you for the for the uh, distraction, the entertainment while we're here. Uh, things are going well." And then years later, I meet him at Chicago Comic Con, and you know he's rebuilding his life. And but these guys, you can see it. They have seen things that we don't see and, you know, it affects you. And every time that guy left the table, I cried. And so I pull, I bring that home. And when it's time to sit here, that's all in my head, you know? Um, so that was a tough one. That really gutted me to make that story, but I feel so glad. I'm so glad that I made it. And then after I put it out, uh, I did get letters from vets, um, you know, who said, yeah, yeah. So. I've met a lot of uh, service members who are big comic book fans and a lot of us who grew up as army brats who ended up being comic book fans. There seems to be like there's a lot of crossover there, um, whether it's escapism or imaginations or uh, superheroes obviously explain a lot of it. But um. I, was, I was born on an Air Force base. And, oh, yeah. uh, so I'm very like, um, you know, you guys, <laughs> so proud of you. <laughs> so. Uh, so let's see. I wanted to make sure that we do ask the scariest question that I can throw at you. What is next? Can you tell us a little about Ever and Serial before we get to the Q&A? Yes. Um, where is Ever? Oh, it's right here. Excellent. Oh my gosh! This is ever. A Baltimore Comic Con exclusive, I hope, just, uh, or I'm declaring it. Uh, you can feel free to show everyone else anyway, but. Uh, uh, this is my cover, but you'll get a better cover. <laughs> Look at that. Oh my gosh! I know, that's a lot of drawing. <laughs> But that's the one page I'm, I've been free to show. Oh my goodness. 
Well, that certainly answers the question of you still work traditionally. Yes, I do. All the lettering is on the pages. Um, here's a page from, what is this? This is Strangers of Paradise 25. And you can oh see my. that I do the old fashioned way. Oh my gosh. <laughs> Just because I love it. I mean, I, I want this piece of paper in my life, you know. Um, I have this thing where um, I love the convenience of computers, but a JPEG is worthless. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so I have like 65 pages there that I will uh, feed out into the world. Um, but if I had 65 JPEGs, I couldn't sell them for a nickel. So that's why I still work traditional. Nice. Yeah. Uh, and, and you have an incredible brush line, which I know a lot of folks can can make that transition. And I certainly like, I think I have officially lost the ability to tell which way things are done because people and the technology is so good now uh, that that incredible work is coming out in multiple forms, but uh, but still yeah. still nice to see. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I feel like the last of it, you know, like one of those rare bears in the zoo or something. <laughs> not, because, uh, Things are hard. Like when I was on deadline and, and you're trying and it's all due tomorrow and you have to make changes. Oh, what a pain. I'm getting out my little removable labels and an exacto knife. It's 1958 in here. <laughs> and I cuss just like a 1958 guy when it's time, you know. Um, and it would be so easy to put it in Photoshopping, you know. Um, but yeah, I do some uh, tweaking in Photoshop after I scan them, but um, I want the page to look as as much like the book as possible. So yeah, you just put in the time and it's, it's very time consuming. But uh, in the at the end of the day, I have these things and they're like miniature paintings or illustrations for me. So, um, you know, I like that. I like being able to go around and you never know when you're going to walk into a Norman Rockwell somewhere, you know, yeah. and then you look at it and you think, wow, he made that in 1965 and there it is and you can touch it, you know. That's cool. And I, I can't think of how many times I've scrolled past Norman Rockwell on the computer Google search, and I don't care. Blah, 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 blah. <laughs> they still get me, I, I will say. But it's I not, look it at, isn't but the same. Yeah, yeah, you know, like, oh, okay, there's like 3,000 Norman Rockwells on the screen. That's cool. But <laughs> if I see a real painting, like, whoa. You're putting those artifacts out into the world. Yes. I uh, like Johnny Appleseed. Those are my little trees there. And they take on a life of their own. They go through owners like violins, you know. <laughs> and I try not. I tried to get them all out because every artist has in their biography. There's an, always a chapter about the studio fire, right? <laughs> yes. So you're you need to get all these out. Um, there's a lot of people. The only reason we have like Van Goghs and things like that is because people took them away from them. Hmm. So you have to get that art out. I had never thought about that there was a preservation angle to uh, putting them all around the, the world in a million different little safe houses. Yes. <laughs> it's like a Terry virus. You'll never track it all down. <laughs> uh, anyway, so Ever, I just finished it. And it's at the Congratulations. printer. Thank you. Thank you. Um, it's at the printer and it comes out mid-November. And then in January, to answer your question, the serial is about this precious darling little child uh, called Zoe, just the cutest little thing. You might want to have her over to your house to play with everybody. Um, she's a 10-year-old serial killer, and she was introduced in Rachel Rising. Um, and if you look at the first cover uh, that's on the internet now, 
uh, it'll kind of give you an idea of what Zoe's about. She's been on several of the books, and I would say that Kachu and Zoe are the two fan favorites out there. Uh, I am very much looking forward to that. Uh, a serial killer story. Uh, uh, why? Just because she's fun or because you wanted to try the genre or a mix of both? Well, I'm not wired right, Amy. <laughs> <laughs> There's something defective going on, <laughs> going on in here. Uh, when I was doing my comic strips, uh, just for myself at home, I... Okay, well, it's, I was about to tell you about Lizzie Borden, but it actually starts before Lizzie Borden. Okay. When we were uh, still in high school, uh, we would go to the drive-in theater, and what, uh, I remember the midnight showing was Reanimator. And we went and got a bunch of uh, jack-in-the-box tacos and french fries and went and sat on the hood of the car and watched Reanimator. And there's just so much blood in Reanimator, it just became hilarious. It was like a food fight in National Lampoon. I mean, there was they were just going to slip on it and swim through it and dive through it. It was just blood, blood, blood. And we laughed so hard that night. I don't know if it was the tacos or whatever that guy was smoking over there. Um, <laughs> but it was just hilarious. I think uh, Reanimator is like one of the funniest movies ever made. It's a joke for me. And then later on when I was cartooning, I'm so sorry I said that phrase, it's a joke. I don't ever want to use those kind of phrases anymore. The whole thing's a disaster, a joke. Um, I would, years later when I was doing comic strips, I said, um, I was reading about Lizzie Borden and it's a terrible thing and it happened in a small town. And for some reason, I got the idea to do a comic strip version of it. And so I did these comic strips where, um, Lizzie Borden was very Victorian and her parents were Victorian and she was walking around the house with an ax all the time in her hand and she was about to pop, she was about to crack. So the, the strips were just about Lizzie before she cracks. I mean, this she's just so, you know, like a kettle steam. As a time bomb, yeah. Yeah, time bomb. So that was the idea of like, how do you approach a story about an ax murderer and get a comic strip out of it? Um, and I did. So years later, I'm doing this story, Rachel Rising, about the scary town. And I knew that there would be a, a serial killer in town. Every time you watch a horror movie, the serial killer is the, the big, ugly guy. Uh, the guy, you know, that guy. The Leatherface, the recluse, the, uh, the guy from the escape from the asylum. It's always a guy. I wanted, what if the scariest person in town, the most dangerous person in town was a 10-year-old girl, you know? So it was, again, it was me just kind of like miscasting on purpose. Um, and that's how I got it. And once I started her, um, her kind of syndrome uh, and explained how this could happen, she's not a normal 10-year-old girl. Um, it just all kind of worked. I, you come up with these really bad ideas and then all of your writing is trying to uh, make it work. <laughs> At what point in the process of Rachel Rising did you realize you wanted to spin Zoe off into a story? Uh, not until it was time to start ever. And then we were thinking, okay, I'm going to do ever until November. What do you want to do in 2021? And, uh, I had been thinking about Zoe a lot. She's one of the uh, most requested uh, characters that I get for sketches. And, um, she's I such thought, a cute little thing. She's, she's, there's nobody else like her, you know? <laughs> 
Um, I feel, you know, one of the things about cartoonists uh, in comic strips is, can you think of a new way to draw a dog or a cat? And that's one of the challenges. If you come up with a new dog, like mutts, the dogs in mutts are different than the dogs in peanuts. And so mutts is like brilliant because he came up with a new dog. And so if I can come up with a character that's not a trope, um, oh, hallelujah, right? <laughs> so I don't know a lot of 10-year-old serial killers in fiction. So I'm glad to have one. It's very exciting. Uh, yeah. How are you going to tackle that story with the mission of keeping hope in your stories? Back to the reanimator part. <laughs> um, uh, the, every time we're facing something scary, like 2020, <laughs> it's all about uh, what, how you see it, right? Uh, there's a story where I... When I first started comics, I was afraid to fly. So every time I had to go to a convention, I would white knuckle it through the trip. And one time we were flying out to California and I'm next to a guy uh, and I white knuckled the entire trip like this, worried about everything. And I think it was a little stormy and bumpy and uh, everything I'm, I don't like. The guy next to me read a newspaper, then took a nap. <laughs> and we got off the plane, we were disembarking and I'm like a wreck. And he looks fresh as Daisy. And I thought, we just went through the exact same flight experience. And look how I took it. Look how he took it. You know, we had two different experiences on the exact same flight. It was so stark. And so then when I come into things like a horror story, you'll notice that I always have uh, somebody in the, in the story that... They're not impressed. They don't care. They're not that, you know, they're distracted by something else. They'd rather, they're, they haven't finished dealing with their sandwich yet. I'll look <laughs> at the corpse in a minute. I'm still making my lunch, <laughs> right? So it's kind of like um, the same thing you would do with satire. If you were a Saturday Night Live writer and you have a lot of news that is very important to the nation, but you need to find a way to stick a pin in that balloon. Mm. That's what you're doing, you know. Um, the guy who follows you around in the mall in real life, that's a bummer. In a comic, you can turn that on that guy and you win this time. And that's the hope, right? I mean, that's the, the entertainment of it. So um, it's very gratifying to write that way, actually, you know. Uh, I like to take these left turns. Like, it looks like it's going to be the crash that we all fear or the illness or the stalker, or the bad boyfriend, something. And we get right up out there and then take a left turn and you win this time. And that, that's that's where the hope is. Oh, that's beautiful. Uh, with that note, I would love to hear if we have some audience questions. I have been monopolizing you for this panel. Uh, but if there are some things that you all would like to know, Troy from Maryland, uh, Mr. T-Dog, it looks like there has always been talk about turning Strangers in Paradise into a movie or series. Did you ever have a dream cast? Kachu, Francine, David, Freddie, Parker? Uh, yes, but... The problem is that Strangers in Paradise is 
been around for quite a while. So my <laughs> cast has aged out like three times. <laughs> if you know, my original cast is all middle aged now. Uh, Think of it like uh, theater; you can put it on every ten years, and it'll win Best Revival. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so it, the current day cast—I uh, don't know—but the original cast was like we referred to. Um, uh, maybe Christina Applegate and Jennifer Connelly and uh, uh, Freddie. There were several good Freddie candidates back in the day. Um, I just ran across a, a I saw a promotional uh, ad recently, just like this week, from the cast for Gotham. Mm. And the black haired lady that is on Gotham would be a fantastic Lilith in. Uh, in Rachel Rising, but ah. she could also play Darcy Parker if we if that went first. So I'm always seeing people that I think, oh, you'd be so great, you know. Um, but I don't know. We'll see. I hope it, I hope something comes onto the screen in my lifetime. It'd be so nice to see it. If all this stuff comes on after I'm gone, I'll be so mad. <laughs> <laughs> the 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 great. Uh, I mean, you, you have already been very well discovered, but I'd like you to get your laurels while you can appreciate them. Yeah. I'd like to watch it on the screen, but it, you know, that can be a mixed blessing. You can think, oh my God, I wish they hadn't made that embarrassment. Right. They we'll might see. be like, we have a great idea. The ending's totally different. Here's what we're going to do. Everything blows up. It's all about a boy and his dog. <laughs> <laughs> That's the classic uh, script story. <laughs> uh, White Whale Comics wants to know, was there a time when you finished an issue and just felt you absolutely nailed it? If so, what issue was it? The last issue of Strangers in Paradise. Uh, I remember uh, approaching that those final pages for a few days. And then when I finished it, it was about eight o'clock at night and Robin knew I was about to finish. And when I got to the very last deal, uh, she came in and took a photograph and we marked the moment. <clears throat> but, um, when I did the last pages of that, man, I had like a lump in my throat for a week. And I thought, oh, I'm getting sick. And then I realized, no, I've been on the verge of tears for a week. <laughs> <laughs> you know, because I'm just, I'm a mush, I'm a mush, very mushy inside. And uh, I just kind of poured my heart into it. And I kept my uh, playlist going, you know, my beautiful soundtrack and all that. And uh, God, what a week that was to finish that up. And when I finished it, I thought I had just spent like 12, 13 years on it. I just finished a 13 year project. You just, you stand up and you think that's the best band I've ever been in my life. I'll never repeat that. You know, it was like, it was like being in the Beatles or something, you know, I think you made it longer than the Beatles and not to be morbid about it, but yeah, we ended on better terms. <laughs> <laughs> you had a lot fewer coworkers to, to butt up against. Yeah. Uh, I, I am curious. I, I, Rickbot has a question for Terry. Okay, if he hasn't already said, uh, who are some of your own favorite indie comic creators? Oh man, that's a long list. Though, um, oh wow. Yeah, I, you know, we'd have to just go through my bookshelf right there. But um, <laughs> there they are. Uh, I like all Very those guys. Nice. I like all those guys. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, I, I think uh, I like Katie Cook, and mm. uh, I've been friends with Jeff for a very long time, Jeff Smith. Katie Cook is really funny. Um, 
uh, Jeremy Bastian has a beautiful pen line, you know, and yeah. he draws these beautiful illustrations in the old style. Cursed Pirate Girl. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, God, there's so many. I don't, I don't even know. Uh, the, one of my favorite books, I'll pass this on to you, is uh, uh, Spirit of Wonder. It's a, a manga book from Japan, and Dark Horse published it for the American audience. The art is enchanting and the story is just totally enchanting. It, it's kind of like an edgy fairy tale. Uh, spirit of Wonder. I don't think I know that one. Great. Thank you. Good. I'm very excited. Yeah, I think you'll like it. There's an actual uh, graphic novel. And then there's another book where uh, apparently it was very popular in Japan. And there was a you know, little movie made and all this kind of stuff. But it's not, it's not really on the radar here, but it should be. I do have, I'm going to sneak in another one of my questions. Uh, speaking of the, the creative teams on your book, which is usually you, uh, you, uh, you may be a one-man creative team, but you're not a one-man operation. Can you talk about uh, the role of your collaborators? And, and I, I gather Robin has been a big part of the behind the scenes of 30 years of self-publishing? Yeah, I would not be here if not for Robin, uh, because I am totally ungrounded. And uh, <laughs> I have no head for business. And I got about two years into it on my own. And then I went to her and I, and I said, I, I really need help to keep going because the more you, the more you, the further in you get, the harder it gets. You know, you have more uh, contacts, phone calls, shipping, orders, all that. And uh, so she came in, she has the business head, uh, she's a businesswoman. And she came in and started running it like a business. And I was able to focus on the creative. And that's been the balance ever since. So, yeah. Uh, and I have found that when you start meeting old cartoonists, <laughs> anybody with white hair, they usually they have a career because they had a partner. You often, they're, they're mm -hmm. made. Um, usually a, a grounded partner that helps them. It almost takes two, two people looking in the opposite directions to keep it all going. Um, if somebody is a cartoonist, eccentric enough to be a cartoonist, um, but they're solo alone, they kind of you know, make uh, impulsive emotional decisions or they don't always collect on the bills or things like that. They can get off the rail. It's hard to keep, we're like dogs in a field <laughs> I mean, somebody to come here. <laughs> so oh, that's fantastic. Uh, I was curious. What are some of your influences besides other comics on your storytelling style? Hmm. That's that other bookshelf right there. <laughs> um, I I really love um, one of the books that I love the most that helped me out when I got into more of my historical fiction things that were drawn from history, was Bill Bryson. Uh, he wrote a book, a nice fat book, called A Brief History of Nearly Everything, where he talks about uh, civilization and how we came up with each of our sciences. Uh, especially in the 19th century, we were on a roll coming up with earth, new earth sciences. And he describes the, the details like a reporter that uh, some oftentimes there were five different theories and they just got into their annual meeting and yelled it out. And whoever won the yelling match is the, th is the theory we have now. <laughs> <laughs> it's 
So I thought that was so funny. The people going back to ether were very soft spoken and they really yeah, lost out in they, the long they run. Didn't argue enough, you know. <laughs> so um, I loved his uh, uh, matter of fact writing, and it helped me when it got time to do my uh, my fictional take on nonfiction. Uh, it helped me to get a, a handle on that. But I also love to read uh, physics. Like I listen to all of the um, Stephen Hawking tapes, you know, and things like that. It's, uh, it lets me feel like um, I'm on a big. Um, I'm, on, I'm I'm living in a in a bigger world. You know, it's not just what I see. There's more. <laughs> Oh, that's wonderful. I, I personally, I love art and science, but I know that most people are sort of, a lot of people like one or the other and don't dabble both ways. Maybe there's more of us than we think. Maybe we've just been tricked into thinking that everybody I, else only likes one. Honest to gosh, I think it's all the same. <laughs> uh, because uh, when you get deep enough into science, you really have to use your imagination. There are leaps that you need to be able to put together all the dots. And it's sort of that way with creativity. Um, you have three wild ideas that are disconnected and you pull them together like a recipe, but you have to figure it out. Um, so yeah, they're very much connected. You use the same side of the brain, I think. I am curious uh, before we're going to have to wrap up in a little bit, but, uh, what is something that you've never gotten a chance to sink your teeth into that you think you might like? <sighs> I w before I go, I want to write a novel and see how that goes. Um, but I would have to take time off from the comic book schedule because the drawing <laughs> takes forever. I can write pretty quick, but the drawing takes forever. Um, the other thing that I regret, but I think the ship has sailed, I never got a chance to do a Supergirl series. I think I would have been good on Supergirl. I think um, you'd be great on Supergirl. She still exists. She still exists, but now she belongs to I, I will I don't I I don't think they dig into outside people anymore that you have to be there. Um but I always felt like she wasn't getting the respect she deserved. She she can also uh pick up and throw the earth across the moon. You know, I mean <laughs> she should have been and every time they had three main DC characters, she should have been one of them. And she can kick Wonder Woman's butt. I don't understand why they decided on Wonder Woman. But they get, they always treated her like, like a sidekick, like Crypto. She was no more important than Crypto. And they just always sent her off planet to deal with aliens and stuff. And I felt like, you know, she had no life. I don't know her apartment and her boyfriend and her wardrobe and who her best friend is and, and what she does on her days off. And none of that. They just had, oh, something, you know, a spaceship crash. Go deal with it. You know, there's no life. I wanted to do that. I think th I think there would be a big audience for that. And you never know what experiments, if you're listening, DC, there is a legendary comics creator who you should probably call to do maybe some of the, the digital first stuff. I know you think they have to uh, scan your paper in and put it on the internet. I'm just saying. <laughs> uh, we would all check it out. And I, I think you were early on the fact that now on in the DC television universe, they have their own Trinity and she is one of the three. It's yeah. Flash and Green Arrow and Supergirl, um, which I think uh, us fans from the, the 90s did not accurately predict that that's where that would go, but it proves the potential that those characters have. I have a take on Flash too that would work in Einstein's universe and it would make a Flash story that would be very interesting. And... Um, 
a lot better than, oh, he's just really fast. Well, you, you, you can't drop tantalizing <laughs> hints like that when we're out of time. Uh, but where can people keep track of your work best or how is best for them to keep up with everything you're doing and Studio Sundays and uh, Terry Terrycon? Yeah. Uh, I'm on Instagram and Twitter and Facebook, and it's Terry Moore Art uh, on all of those handles. The, that's my address. So, um, yeah, I'm easy to find on the Internet, and uh, I have a website and uh, a YouTube channel. So catch me. Absolutely. Thank you so much for thank joining you, me. For my, this is my first Baltimore. I've never actually gotten to go. So thank you for help giving me an incredible first Baltimore Comic-Con experience. Wonderful. Thank you. Thank you so much for talking with me. There you go. Fun spotlight conversation from Baltimore Comic-Con. Terry Moore and Amy Dallin. I've got another Amy Dallin pa panel that I'll be sharing with you. Maybe two more. I forget who did uh, Streets of Marvel, but I've got Streets of Gotham lined up for the next Word Balloon podcast from Baltimore. I'll also have a conversation with Sean Crystal on Word Balloon Live Monday night at uh, 7 o'clock Central, 8 o'clock Eastern. Uh, Sean, not only a tremendous artist, but also uh, the host of the Ink Pulp podcast, a great creator to a creator uh, show that uh, Sean has been doing for several years now. And uh, it's always fun to uh, get Sean on and compare notes and see how things are going. Uh, he's one of my favorite podcasters, and uh, he does incredible interviews. If you don't listen to Ink Pulp, then you certainly should. But uh, Sean Crystal tonight on Word Balloon Live. This episode of Word Balloon brought to you by the League of Word Balloon listeners and their subscriptions and support of Word Balloon via Patreon, patreon.com slash wordballoon. I am pleased to say that not only are there listeners, but also a lot of comic book guests are uh, supporters of Word Balloon via Patreon and part of the League. Uh, I would like to uh, send you a domino mask and cape for your support. If you're interested, I know it's a weird time and a lot of people are counting every penny. Um, is Word Balloon and the programming I provide to you each month worth a dollar a month to you? Is it worth the price of a comic book a month? If you think it is, if you can swing it, I hope you'll consider a subscription to Word Balloon via Patreon, patreon.com slash Word Balloon. Word Balloon is also brought to you by Aftershock Comics. Aftershock has a really interesting slate of books that are happening. A really neat book that just got announced. It's called Knock 'em Dead, and it's from Elliot Ryle and Mattia Monaco. Prior Bryce has always wanted to be funny, and now he's taken the plunge and started doing stand-up comedy. Unfortunately, his older sister, Ronan, wants her brother to stop daydreaming and focus on his future. Prior is determined to succeed. The only problem is he totally sucks at stand-up. That is until an accident changes everything, leading both Prior and Ronan to discover comedy isn't all, all it's cracked up to be. Coming your way in December, it's Knock 'em Dead, a supernatural horror about the high cost of making it. Brought to you by Elliot Royale and Mattia Monaco from Aftershock Comics. Pretty neat stuff. A new interesting book that will be joining the Aftershock Pantheon. Check out more details. Go to their website and find out about more great series. Full story descriptions, preview pages of art, and the diamond coats on how to order these books and more at AftershockComics.com. That'll do it. Uh, more panels uh, from Baltimore and more new conversations from Word Balloon in the days ahead. We also have a big announcement coming regarding the next mainframe Comic-Con event. Very exciting. It's going to be at the end of November. We're just waiting to hear the final de uh, details, and then I'll be happy to share them with you on the podcast and start promoting the hell out of this very cool event that's happening the last weekend in November. Until next time, Word Balloon is a copyright feature of Shaky Productions. Copyright 2020. Stay safe, stay happy, stay healthy.
Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky. Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere playing at luckylandslots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18+. Plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chum- Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.